Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, uh, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. It is so good to be with you on the lawn. Um, I know it is chilly, and actually what it's reminding me of, um, there may be a couple of people here who were with us way back in the day at the Miramar Theater. <laughs> Anybody remember how cold it got inside there? It was about this temperature, so you know what, we're coming up in the world, now we got blankets. But it's so good to be with you, um, and I appreciate the, um, the energy that you all are bringing here to the lawn and the ways that you're showing up for one another, for yourselves, and for God. And I appreciate so much those of you who are on live stream with us and showing up from your locations and spaces, and I send love to you wherever you are uh, and whenever you are if you're not catching this on Sunday morning. But uh, we are in this series called Naked As We Came, which is a reflection on the first weeks of life um, as Cameron and I are returning from parental leave and bringing with us uh, some of the reflections that we've had uh, during our time with our newborn, Micah. Now, uh, I think that since we can't get it on this screen, you can get this on your phone if you're in person, um, but we do have a picture of Micah. I'm trying to pepper those in because, you know, proud parent. Um, so hopefully that'll appear, I don't even know, I don't know what direction, but if you wanna, <laughs> if you wanna pull it up. Um, my daughter Micah um, is now three months old and uh, she's actually having kind of a rough week. She uh, was born with some oral ties. These are relatively common. It's extra, um, it's extra connective tissue, sometimes in the lips and sometimes under the tongue. And uh, so she had to have oral surgery this week to release all of those. And part of that tongue tie release, um, which will eventually give her greater mobility and use of her mouth, but also have her able to breathe better as her nasal passages develop and have lifelong impact. Part of the healing process for that is these stretches that we have to do six to eight times every 24 hours. And it's when Cameron or I or other people who love her get in there with our fingers into her mouth and stretch her wounds. And it is brutal. It is brutal. It's brutal for us. It's obviously more brutal for her. But as a parent, it's extremely hard because I'm participating in her pain. And I'm helping her body heal, but I know that it hurts her in that moment and it hurts her over and over again. Now, having done a lot of my own healing, I know about the relationship between suffering and healing. I know that it often comes together, that healing often hurts at least a little bit, at least in the short term, usually because like Micah, we are revisiting our wounds. It is not that the, the pain is actually helping us so much as going back to our points of pain is necessary in order to heal. I can think about this and I can know that and hold that in my heart as I am helping Micah with her stretches but I can't really communicate that to her, not in any way that she'll comprehend. And so my reasoning for doing her stretches or giving her shots or doing anything that brings her any kind of pain means nothing to her in those moments when she is crying out to me with eyes and a quivering lip that say, why? Why is this happening to me? 
And so I've been wrestling lately with this idea that we often throw around in our culture, especially in Christian circles, that God's ways are higher than our ways when it comes to suffering. Honestly, I've often dismissed that almost exclusively because I feel like it's used a lot of times as a way to dismiss people's pain or even to justify people's abuse. That we say, oh, God must have a plan. God's ways are higher than our ways. Your pain has a purpose. Because usually that's the implicit message underneath that, that God is hurting you on purpose for some greater good. And I think that's nonsense. I think that describes a cruel and careless God, and it doesn't square with the character of God that I know in Jesus, in the Gospels, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Yet here I am, doing something that I know causes immediate pain to my child because I want her to heal. And it's been hard because some of the things that I long to say to her, like, Micah, I'm doing this for your own good, or Micah, I know this hurts, it hurts me too. I don't like it either. Those are some of the things that abusers tell their victims. And so I think one of the difficulties when we try and understand suffering and pain in this world is that it is so bound up with the ways that abuse and oppression function in the world that it's very difficult to untangle what is real anymore. And yet I know that as a parent, some of the things Micah needs to do to heal or to stay safe or to grow in a healthy way will be hard or even painful for her. And I would be a bad parent if I let my desire to shield her from pain be more important than her need to heal or to stay safe or to grow. And so I have to wrestle with this God's ways are higher than our ways idea. I think that it's layered and compli complicated, much like our relationship to most scripture or most theology, most ideas about God. And I think that the fundamental fallacies of that idea, God's mysterious ways around pain, can be broken down and so we can be left with what is true. But the three fallacies that we need to break down are one, the pain or suffering is the point. Two, that God chooses the pain for you or allows you to suffer on purpose, which is to say God wants you to be in pain, sometimes even as a punishment. And three, that God could intervene to stop your pain, but doesn't. I actually think all three of those things are wrong. I don't believe them. And in all of our work to establish what we believe about God, it's actually equally important for us to establish what we disbelieve, what we know to not be true. And it can be really deeply unsatisfying to us sometimes because we want to be able to say, this I believe, but it's actually really equally important for us to be able to say, I don't believe that. So let's go through these pieces of the things that I'm proposing that we disbelieve. Number one, pain is the point. The idea here is that pain and suffering are in and of themselves productive, redemptive. This fallacy is deeply embedded in our culture beyond the Christian narrative. The idea no pain, no gain is everywhere. And we think that in order to thrive, we must hurt. Now, I think we do this a lot to justify the pain we're in, 
to say this must have a purpose because otherwise it is difficult to just sit with our pain and name it and hold it. We want it to have a reason so that it feels less bad. But honestly, what that does is just create a world in which our pain is more central than our healing. Pain can be a motivator. Pain can be an indicator. Pain can locate us in what is happening. It can help us orient to our wounds. But pain and suffering are debilitating. We are always at our strongest and most capable when we are well and when we are secure. Pain is destabilizing. Suffering takes us away from our strongest core self. And so if we can, for a moment, step back from that narrative that tries to justify our, our pain by saying it is necessary for us to grow, what if we just said, we grow and we grow, and sometimes it is painful and the pain hurts? What if we have the capacity to hold that, to grieve that, without trying to justify it? To say, actually, I am stronger when I am not in pain, and I can overcome pain. It is hard to just hold space for the things that hurt. But I believe that that is what God does for us. In fact, in the scriptures, we have people lifted up who just hold their pain and do not try and justify it and sometimes refuse to be comforted out of it. Rachel, one of my favorite references in uh, the book of Matthew is that Rachel, who lost her children, cried and would not be consoled. She wept and wailed and mourned and would not be consoled. She is held up as holy in this way. Job, another favorite character and book for me in the Bible, is all about a man who experiences tremendous loss and who spends 40 chapters yelling about it, grieving, saying, this is garbage, God and is called holy and righteous for that. God has enough space to hold our pain. God can create a container for our pain without trying to justify it or make it meaningful, but to just say, I bear witness, this is awful. The second fallacy that we need to reject and break down is the idea that God chooses this pain for you or allows you to suffer on purpose which means that God wants you to be in pain, sometimes even as a punishment to correct or control your behavior. This is something that is really pervasive, extremely pervasive in our understandings of God, that God is a sort of puppeteer who doesn't mind torturing us in order to control our behavior. People worry that God is angry at them and causing bad things to happen in their lives. I'll often talk about how I've met many people over coffee who don't believe in God, but fear that God hates them and can hold those tensions in their body all the time. No matter how much they try to say, I don't even think God is real, there is a fear that God hates them and that is usually tied to a fear of punishment. That we have been taught to believe that God will harm us on purpose and that we are supposed to be okay with it because it's coming from God. I believe this is a violation of the character of God. It's not who God is or how God does. And this is something that Jesus takes head on. In our scripture today, 
Jesus' teaching, and some of the people who are trying to challenge him come up to him, and they, they bring up this incident where the, the Roman authorities and the middle management collaborating with the Roman authorities slaughtered some Galileans in their place of worship. And this is a really loaded example because the Galileans were considered sort of second-class religious folk. They weren't the very good Jews. And so they were the ones who might be more subject to God's punishment for being not holy enough or not good enough. Implicit in the question is, did they kind of deserve this? Did God do this to them on purpose to send a message? And Jesus' response is like, do you think that these Galileans who were slaughtered were like worse Galileans than other Galileans? He actually then brings it closer to home and talks about folks who they might relate more to, who had recently died in an accident, the collapse of a tower in the city of Jerusalem. And he said, were these people more bad than all the other people in Jerusalem? The implicit answer in that is obviously not. Justo Gonzalez makes a comparison. He says it would be like asking if those who died in the Twin Towers on 9-11 were worse offenders or sinners than all others living in New York City at the time. Of course not. And it would be horrific to suggest that. And yet we blame victims of suffering constantly for their own pain. We do this especially around moralizing poverty. We say, oh, well, I can have compassion, but aren't these communities really bringing things on themselves? I can have compassion for myself, but shouldn't I have just made better decisions about interacting with these systems that oppress me? Shouldn't I have not poked the bear? Shouldn't I have known how to navigate these these hierarchies. We moralize around suffering as though it is our responsibility to be perfect and that if we were perfect, we wouldn't suffer. And embedded in all of that is the assumption that pain is a punishment. How many people, I want to see in comments on the live stream, I want to see hands up here, how many people, even as a joke, have ever said, God must be punishing me. It's baked in. It's deeper in us than we like to admit sometimes. But it is wrong. And we need to root that lie out of our bodies. Jesus confronts this not only by saying, hey, these folks weren't any more sinful than other folks, but actually kind of offers a little jab at the question answer or the question asker. He points out how ridiculous it is by basically saying, listen, if God were trying to kill people for being sinful, you would be included in that. Listen, buddy, if this is how it worked, if God was punishing people for being crappy people, you'd be first to the line, along with everybody else. So stop suggesting that anyone who is suffering is doing so at God's hand as a punishment because we're all in this same boat together. It actually kind of uh, calls to my mind one of my favorite scriptures, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
And the reason that's a favorite scripture of mine is because it's a comfort to me that we are all in the same boat, that we all are broken and have, have pain and wounds in our life. We all act in ways that we ought not. And so when we are suffering, we can be confident that we are not being singled out for something we have done wrong because we are all in this same boat together, all striving to be our best and failing often. And if God wanted to punish us for that, we would all be punished universally. But that's not what God does. And again, we put that on God because we are trying to make sense of the things that happen around us that hurt. Justo Gonzalez goes on to say, certainly, famine and misery are the result of human sin, although very likely not the sin of those who are suffering and dying. The surprising thing is not that so many die, but that we still live. If it were a matter of sin, we would all be dead. And so we know that that's actually not how God responds to sin or poor choices or bad behavior. God is not someone who swoops in to punish. And Jesus doesn't really give a better answer because it would be completely justified for those folks to push back at Jesus and say, well, then why did that tower fall? Why did they get slaughtered in their place of worship? Why are all of these terrible things happening? And Jesus doesn't give an answer to that, but he gives a definitive answer to what we disbelieve. We do not believe that God is harming people on purpose and certainly not as a punishment for sin. The third fallacy, God could intervene to stop your pain, but doesn't. Now, it might surprise folks to hear that I think that's something that we need to disbelieve. It's sort of baked into that question, the question of evil. It's called theodicy, and it's one of the biggest, thorniest questions in conversations about God. How could there be a loving, all-powerful God that allows evil in the world? And what we always start to question is that first part, loving. But we never stop to question that second part, all-powerful. Part of what has made me think about this is seeing the way my three-month-old daughter looks at me and Cameron. She has no concept of what we are capable of and not, but she knows that we orient her entire world. When she moves through the world, it is because we carry her. When she eats, it is because we feed her. When she cries, we are the ones who come. She doesn't know the limits of our power. And so early on in her life, when she was experiencing colic and pain each night with digestion, she would look at us with this face that was like, why? Why aren't you stopping this? You feed me when I cry because I'm hungry. You respond when I cry because I'm uncomfortable. But I'm in pain right now and you're not fixing it. Why? And the thing that she can't understand that I long to tell her is, I would if I could, but I can't. Now, this is another one that we don't like to confront because it may feel unsettling to think about the idea that God could be limited. And I think that we turn to scriptures that say, with, all, with God, all things are possible. And we say, God must be omnipotent. 
But that idea, omnipotence, it's a very human construction. We think God is capable of all things. We don't really think about the nuance of what that means. And in our theological traditions, there have been a lot of white European uh, patriarchal lineages that have really placed a priority on what they call sovereignty. It feels extremely important in these theological traditions that God be fundamentally in charge and that no one can challenge that power of God's. And so when these conflicts come up where God must be either all-powerful in the way that we understand or loving, it makes sense that the lovingness would be what falls away because nothing can change the supremacy of the sovereignty of God. But what if that is a very simplistic and childlike construction that we have? What if we are also looking up at God with little newborn eyes and quivering lips saying, fix it, why wouldn't you? This is so cruel of you not to, without any comprehension that God may not be able to, not in the ways that we want, not in the simple constructions that we imagine. And why are we so much quicker to question God's goodness than God's power? It is more important to me that God is good and I have a lot more evidence for it. And just because God may not be all-powerful in this way that is akin to waving a magic wand and changing my circumstances doesn't mean that God isn't powerful. It means that power is more complicated than we like to imagine. God can still be in charge and unable to control us or coerce us or change our behavior without violating creation. God may have limitations and constraints that are beyond us. And there is an element of this in the book of Job, after 40 chapters of Job wailing and wailing at God and God calling Job righteous. God also says, basically, were you there when I made the mountains? You don't understand. And so God simultaneously affirms the crying out, holds space for the pain, and says, some of this is beyond you. There is something here that you don't comprehend. I am still here with you. God doesn't disappear out of that. God's goodness prevails and God is present and God holds our pain and shows up for us. And God says, there's stuff you don't get. And I wonder what would change if we shifted our narrative about what we prioritized in our understanding of who God is. To say God must be good, therefore there must be something else we don't understand. Not God must be all-powerful, therefore God's goodness is up for debate. How different would it be for my little child who is suffering and in pain in various ways in her life to think my parents are good so they must not be torturing me. We must be going through this suffering together, and perhaps they have a greater understanding of why this is happening this way. That is fundamentally different than imagining our God, our divine parent, as an intentional strategic torturer who is trying to control us or manipulate us or shape us through pain. But most important to me in this relationship about mystery is holding the space for God's relationship to suffering. As we think of God as omnipotent, 
from a position where we don't like to suffer, we assume then that God doesn't suffer. We assume that God is capable of preventing God's suffering and that therefore God would. This kind of brings up this idea, this philosophical idea of the Aristotelian watchmaker God, the God who sort of sets everything mechanically up, puts it in motion, and steps back to observe, as though God is watching our pain but not participating in it. But that doesn't seem to square with the scriptures or my experience of God either. In Romans, God talks about, in Romans, Paul talks about the movement of creation toward the kingdom. And he describes the kingdom, or he describes creation as groaning, as in birth pangs. Now, having recently had birth pangs of my own, I know that they're really unpleasant, extremely painful in moments, a type of suffering. And if all of God's creation is suffering, and if we suffer when we are bringing new things into creation, if part of bringing a beautiful tiny baby into this world is suffering and pain and loss, and we are created in the image of God, then wouldn't it stand to reason that creation may have been painful for God too? That there is something fundamental about bringing new life into the world that hurts. Again, for reasons we can't quite comprehend. But if creation groans with birth pangs, it is because God knows those pangs and experiences them and experienced them first. That before we hurt, God hurt bringing us into being in ways that we don't understand, but we can honor the way God honors us by holding it by seeing it and not trying to rationalize it away. This changes Jesus on the cross for me because for a long time I conceptualized Jesus coming to the earth and, and participating in human life and suffering and dying on the cross as kind of honestly a performative act of solidarity. That God didn't have to suffer, but God chose to suffer. But what if that's not actually how it is at all? What if it was a glimpse into an ongoing eternal reality that God does suffer and we got to see it in a really intimate way in that moment on the cross, but that God is subject to pain and suffering just as we are and that we are in it together and we hope that God has a better grip on it than we do. God's suffering is, is not a bug, it is a feature. What if suffering is a part of creation, not because God fails to intervene, but because it is necessary in how we come to be? The pain is not the point. God is not hurting us on purpose. God does not want us to be in pain. But God is there suffering alongside us, suffering into wholeness, approaching the wounds of creation, groaning with us as new life comes into being bringing us back to wholeness altogether. As Micah has been in pain this week, we've been given various advice about how to comfort her. But the most notable to me, the one that is least based on science that we have come up with ourselves and most tapping into who she is and who we are, is skin-to-skin -skin contact. They say, be close with her. 
And there is science behind this. If we have skin-to-skin contact, her body and my body will release oxytocin, which helps to not only ease her pain, but, but um, speed up her healing. Closeness, connection, these are the remedies to pain. And it doesn't make it go away. It doesn't dull it or deaden it. It doesn't help us pretend it's not there. But it draws us in toward one another and it activates those parts within us that are already and always there, that are made to heal, that are made to be comforted, that are made to comfort one another. And so it is not a platitude to say that in our pain we need to seek one another or God. It is how we are built. And so instead of being those who isolate in pain, which is so easy to do, we need to rise to the challenge of drawing together when we are in pain, bringing our pain to each other and to God, knowing that that closeness is what is healing, that it activates in us what is already there to give us everything we need. It doesn't negate the pain. It doesn't give the pain purpose. But it allows us to move through it together people with one another and their God, bearing witness to what happens, holding space, and emerging healed together through all the pain. Now I know that what I have offered today is not a set of easy answers, and I think that that's part of the reason that we prefer to think about it in these platitudes. There must be a reason. God's ways are higher than our ways. But I would encourage you the next time you are in a type of pain, maybe it's right now, or experiencing a kind of suffering that it feels like it has no purpose, to actually just hold that space and to say, yes, pain can just be pain. And God has not abandoned you. God is not choosing to hurt you. God is right there with you, experiencing pain alongside you, your pain and God's own pain. But God has given us the roadmap through. It is closeness and connection which are healing. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, you have not given us an easy creation, but you have given us a beautiful and healing one. We pray that you would allow us to follow your lead into closeness, that just as you came close to, uh, close to us in your pain in the cross, that we would seek you and one another in our pain. God, help us to resist easy answers that create bigger problems. Help us to face the truth of our own suffering and hold it without judgment, to cry out to you without reservation, and to know that you are drawing close to us and that that closeness is enough. Amen.